Hello and welcome to the podcast for the January 2010 issue of The Lancet Neurology and Happy New Year to you all. In a moment, we're going to hear from Professor Kate Bushby from the University of Newcastle-upon-Tyne. But first, I'm delighted to be joined for the first time in this new year by Heather Brown from The Lancet Neurology. Welcome, Heather. Hello, Richard. Thanks very much for joining us. Let's start with an article, a fascinating story here, if somewhat disturbing story, about the emergence of neurological autoimmune disorder for workers at an abattoir in the United States. First of all, give us the background to the story, because it is very interesting, Heather. In September 2007, doctors at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, noticed that over the past year they'd had a cluster of patients with unusual neurological symptoms. It eventually emerged that 21 patients in Minnesota and another three in Indiana all had a similar sort of neuropathy and that all of these people had worked in abattoirs and they all worked either at or close to areas where the brains of pigs were removed by compressed air. Symptoms varied a little but all of the patients presented with or later developed symptoms that included pain, prickling or tingling sensations and weakness that it was quite often associated with difficulty with walking or standing for long periods. Clearly very disturbing for those involved. Some analysis has, was done, as you say, at, at the nearby Mayo Clinic. What type of analysis was done there? The lead author of the study, Daniel Lachance, and his team did several types of analysis. They used electromyography, autonomic reflex tests, sensory tests, sweat tests, and MRI. And they also tested the blood and, in some cases, cerebral spinal fluids for a long list of things, including several antibodies and viruses. The researchers took nerve biopsies from some of the patients, and whether the patients had antibodies that recognised neural antigens was tested using sections of mass tissue. The investigators also looked at some control people, so that included people who worked in the abattoirs who had no symptoms, and also some unaffected people from the wider community. In terms of the mode of transmission, what were people's ideas here? Presumably there could be different ways in which this could have happened, and how was it decided that this was actually an autoimmune neurological process going on? Well, the researchers tested for infections, and they found no ev- evidence of HIV, hepatitis B, C or E, Epstein-Barr virus, cytomegalovirus or Lyme disease or of porcine endogenous retroviruses that can infect human cells. Serum from all 24 patients contained antibodies that bound to brain and nerves from sections of mice, and levels of these antibodies were lower the further away the patients had worked from the table where the brain tissue was being removed from the pig skulls. These antibodies were much less common in people who worked at the abattoirs but who did not have symptoms. 18 of the patients had antibodies that recognised a protein called myelin basic protein, from pigs and 10 people had antibodies that recognised that protein from humans. So Heather, how are the patients now and what are the implications, the public health implications for workers in abattoir settings do you think? As soon as the link to the abattoirs was made, workers involved in the removal of brains in this way were given face masks and greater skin protection and the procedure now seems to have been stopped. By the end of the study in June 2008, many of the patients had improved either spontaneously or with treatment, but all of them still had some sort of pain or sensory dysfunction. And finally on this article, Heather, what do the commentators say in the linked reflection and reaction piece? In their linked commentary, Hugh Willison and David Wraith point out that antibodies to myelin basic protein are not the whole story because they were not identified in all patients and were also found in some of the patients who didn't or some of the abattoir workers who didn't have symptoms. The comment authors also highlight the importance of taking an occupational history as part of a neurological consultation. And next, Heather, another research article, this time one concerning whole body cooling for babies with hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. This is actually a sub-study of a larger trial that was published in the New England Journal. Is that correct? 
Yes, the study is part of the Total Body Hypothermia for Neonatal Encephalopathy, or TOBI, trial, which was published in October this year. 325 infants who had perinatal asphyxial encephalopathy were randomly assigned to intensive care either with or without therapeutic hypothermia, which involved use of a cooling blanket to keep the baby's temperature at around 33 or 34 degrees C for 72 hours. The main study found that uh, the cooling increased survival without neurological abnormality at 18 months and reduced risk of cerebral palsy. In this sub-study by Mary Rutherford and colleagues, the authors looked at the effects of the cooling on brain lesions on MRI scans, which were taken for 131 of the children within the first four weeks after birth. And Heather, just remind us, how does encephalopathy actually come about? Asphyxia at around the time of birth can mean that the brain doesn't receive enough oxygen to be able to function properly. And even when the flow of blood is restored, in some cases, the damage done to the developing brain can lead to learning difficulties later on. It's been estimated that about 20% of childhood cerebral palsy is caused by hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy after perinatal asphyxia. And also, Heather, I see that MRI scans, MRI findings are key, really, aren't they? It's play a central part in this sub-study of, of the TOBE trial. Can you explain the significance of the MRI here? The MRI scans showed that Babies who were called were significantly less likely to have brain abnormalities and to have scans that predicted damage to motor systems. This confirms and helps to explain the results of the main study by revealing which areas of the brain are most likely to benefit from cooling. The finding that the scans taken within the first four weeks could predict with about 80% accuracy whether the child would die or be disabled by 18 months shows that the accuracy of the MRI is unaffected in children who have been called, which is important because other types of neurological assessment are difficult in children who are that young. Absolutely, and I think it's sort of important to acknowledge how difficult it is actually to do clinical research when dealing with such young babies. Finally, Heather, can you just um, pick up on what the commentators say in re- the reflection reaction piece? In his link commentary, Jeff Neal discusses some issues related to the timings of the scans. For example, the timings varied within the first four weeks after birth, and it seems that the appearance of abnormalities was associated with age. Many thanks, Heather, and well done on your first podcast for the Lancet Neurology and look forward to the next time we get together. But let's now hear from Professor Kate Bushby. She is author of two reviews on Duchenne muscular dystrophy, but in the January 2010 issue of the Lancet Neurology, we publish in print the first of these two reviews. Duchenne muscular dystrophy is a genetic disorder. It's one of the more common um, genetic diseases of childhood. It's X-linked in its mode of inheritance, so it affects mainly boys. And we think there are around 1 in 3,500 male births are are going to be affected with DMD. Little boys who have Duchenne tend to show their first symptoms when they're around 3 or 4 or 5, when they're noticed that they can't run as fast as their peers and they have difficulty getting up from the floor or climbing stairs. And it's a progressive condition leading to the boys needing to use a wheelchair by the time they're in their teens. And unfortunately, without specific management of the complications in the respiratory and cardiac um, systems, it leads to death by the, by the 20s. And I think that the impetus for developing these care guidelines came from the patient organizations in a great, great part who really were saying that, you know, management just is not being applied uniformly across the world. People are not getting access to even simple modalities of management that are available in the best centres for people with DMD. And really, we needed to level the playing field so that today's patients would benefit from what's available now. And also, in the future, as we come to new therapies, these would also be able to be applied on a, on a kind of you know, standardised baseline. I don't think we should underestimate how enormous the task has been in, in 
the two reviews that are published because this is a major international effort, isn't it, to try and get some consensus about the appropriate care guidelines for DMD. How did you go about doing that? I mean, you've you've gained the input of over sort of around 80 experts worldwide, isn't that right? That's right. Well, I think that a lot of initiatives came together at the same time and that meant that there was a great will to work together to get some guidelines that really would carry weight internationally. And these initiatives included um, in the USA the passing of the MD Care Act, which actually mandated, according to law, that there had to be care guidelines developed under the auspices of the Centers for Disease Control, CDC. At the same time in Europe, the EU funded a network of excellence, which is called Treat and MD, which I'm one of the coordinators of. And one of its remits also was to come up with care guidelines. So it seemed a very logical progression to combine the two efforts and actually involve experts from both sides of the Atlantic in developing these care considerations and utilize also, of course, the expertise of the CDC in its public health and all the rest of it to get to get everybody on the same page and working together to produce something that would carry weight. So in terms of what these consensus guidelines, care guidelines are internationally that you, you, you've come up with. You very much advocate uh, a multidisciplinary approach, don't you? Can you go into a bit more detail as to what that means? Well, right from the very start, we have to acknowledge that Duchenne muscular dystrophy, although its major and most visible effects are on the skeletal muscles leading to weakness and eventually an inability to walk, Duchenne also affects other systems of the body. So it often requires, for example, input from orthopedics in order to manage some of the complications of the weakness. It affects the cardiac cardiac muscles, so cardiology has to be involved. It affects the, the respiratory system and the gastrointestinal system in the, in the later stages and so forth. So really, in order to provide the optimal care for somebody with DMD, it's a question of coordinating many different specialists, each of whom may you know, dip in and out of the life of a particular patient while the complications in that particular system are particularly predominant. Of course, over the lifetime of a Duchenne patient, this has to be coordinated by someone who understands the possible complications of the condition and also the management implications that these carry. And what implications are there for implementation and, and the health system behind that you, that you need to deliver that care? Clearly, this does involve the input of a health system in recognising that a patient with DMD doesn't just have one set of problems, but rather will need to have input from these different specialists as time goes by. And really, this this international document is the first time that all of those different specialties have contributed to the development of, of guidelines such as these. Clearly an awful lot of work getting to this point in the validation and production and publication of, of international guidelines, which is what's happening through publication here in the Lancet Neurology. How do you move from the existence of the guidelines through to implementation? Well, we're currently working on the production of a, a guide for families to accompany the main document because we realise that this document, while it is, it's, it's directed at all different kinds of medical specialties and, and also generalists in order to give people guidelines to help manage them with, with DMD, it, it is very highly technical. And therefore, our first priority is to get a guide for families out, which they can use alongside the main document in order to understand the implications for them and for their child of the different recommendations that have been made. At the same time, we have gathered together the stakeholders who were keen to promote the development of the guidelines in the first place, so that various patient and advocacy organizations who were a real driving force to getting these guidelines through to this point. And they are all going to be using the guidelines and taking them to their governments, taking them to their health authorities and so forth to promote them as a, as a means to see care delivered along these lines. 
We also have another EU-funded project which will be coming into place next year called Care NMD, which will be utilising the platform of the Treat NMD project that I've already mentioned. And this is all about monitoring the implementation of care for DMD along the lines recommended in these articles. So we have a number of strands and we really believe that over the next few years we want to see standards rising and patients becoming more involved in seeing that this is the level of care they should be getting and working with doctors and others to make sure that's what, what what's delivered. Well, it's obviously been an enormous amount of work. Many thanks indeed, Professor Kate Bushby, for talking to the Lancet Neurology and I hope your cold gets better soon. <laughs> Thank you very much. Many thanks to Professor Bushby and to Heather Brown and to you all for listening. See you next month.